This is undeniably a new golden age of television drama, both in quantity and quality. So much drama, so much variety of drama, and most important, so many outlets to play your drama. But how much has really changed? One person who would know is one of our finest screenwriters, Fiona Samuel. And not just on the screen, we've just played her radio trilogy, Hat Trick, in our classic drama slot. And Fiona's recently been conducting workshops on the secrets of creating brilliant TV. Mind you, Fiona's been doing that ever since she first stepped up with a mini-masterpiece called Marching Girls. Since then, she's written too many series to mention, Outrageous Fortune, Agent Anna, Broken Wood, Nothing Trivial, and the brilliant one-off Consent the Louise Nicholas story. Simon Morris talks to Fiona Samuel about the new landscape of TV series. How do you feel when people say, finally, women's stories are being heard on TV? I mean, what have you been doing the last 10, 15, 20 years? I've been doing women's stories like forever, but I think we've reached a tipping point now. In fact, we've actually gone over the tipping point and female-driven dramas, they've really entered the mainstream without any apology or here's something a little bit weird and different that you might not like. They have exited their niche where they never actually deserve to be and they've entered centre stage. That's a change I've waited for my whole working life. So bring it on, I say. I wondered whether it was the European influence that um, had some say in that. I think of Swedish TV series in particular, but the whole of Europe seems to be very much driving this. I think it's lots of things, but perhaps the biggest one is point of difference. Because there is this huge appetite for stories and now this huge global market for stories more 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 everybody's looking for the thing they haven't seen or heard before and because there have been so many more male lead characters than female lead characters to have a female lead is fresh when people first started talking about a golden age of television back in the 90s and the noughties Mm. they were talking about breaking bad the sopranos mad men those are the three they're all male protagonists the the lead characters are all male right so um there was still room for the women to step up and take the lead. You've just come back from Copenhagen talking about screenwriting. What was that like? Yeah, I went to the World Conference of Screenwriters in Copenhagen and it was, I mean, for New Zealanders, it just gives you a real dust up and a bit of a thrill to be in amongst it because we're we're a long way from anybody else and particularly the last two and a half years have been weirdly isolating for us. So it was a, a heady rush just to be there Mm. with screenwriters from many lands and you know what it's like when you get together with a whole bunch of people who do what you do, talking about the things that we spend all day grappling with, often on our own. Suddenly you're in a room full of people who have those exact same challenges as you. So we partly talk about esoteric craft stuff and then we partly talk about money. (laughs) That's really how the conversations break down. Uh, Art and money, you know, the two halves of show business. It's show and it's also business. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when people talk about this current golden age of television, it is all to do with the streaming services. It's to do with so many more possible outlets. And I wonder whether it affects the sort of shows that get written. 
Essentially, I think it's the same because you're always thinking about your end of episode cliffhanger, whether it's going to be another week before people can see your new app or whether they could just go straight onto it if they want to. The essential story feature is the same, that you want to leave people in a place where they go, I have to know what happens next. And you could even go back to novels and say structurally that's similar. At the end of the chapter, you want to have the ball in the air. You want to have unanswered questions. You want people to go, oh, it's really late, but I'm going to leave the light on and turn the <laughs> One more time. That's one of the absolute essentials of story, that there's got to be the promise of something coming. And when you've reached the end of that string of promises, your show is over. That's one thing that you don't often hear. People don't plan for a show to be over now. They plan for this no, thing to go no, on they forever. Don't. <laughs> um, having said your show is over, if you can think of another promise, a bigger promise, mm. where you've, la- I, I call it landing the plane, you've landed your plane in that the essential mission of your series is completed. Mm. That's something I like to do. Not every writer, there'll be different schools of thought on that. I like to land my plane, but if there's the promise of another flight, let's put it that way, (laughs) could I take this plane somewhere else? I've flown it all the way to here and that's great. Could it go somewhere else? A really great example of that that I'm loving at the moment is The White Lotus. The first series last year was just so satisfying. They were in Hawaii. It was, a, it was a tropical resort anyway. This year, it's another White Lotus hotel in Italy. Equally beautiful, completely different, same concept, a bunch of ridiculously overprivileged Americans <laughs> in another country exploiting the locals and being exploited in their turn. So same concept but different journey so that's a way in which you can have your cake and eat it too as far as ending the story and yet not ending the show because yeah if you've got a show that people love of course you want to come back do you ever get nostalgic about shows that actually had a built-in shape to them starting here and it ends in six episodes time and that's the end of it and move on to something else i still do love those Mm. and there's still room for them and we've still got them one that i watched last year was mayor of east town as far as i know there's not going to be another mayor of east town and that was hugely satisfying in the seven or eight eps. So, yeah, there is still a place for that. I have very fond memories of a show called, I think, Unbelievable. Oh, Tri- yeah, that was great. And it was a true story, which is always kind of helpful as far as giving you a limit to the length of the story. But it yeah. was absolutely stunning, I thought. And it hasn't come back. They took one bite at it. They did the whole thing. And that was that another thing it's completely gone well I'm not going to say it's gone completely but I mean the fact is that the one-off play the thing that kicked off in the early days of TV I found terribly satisfying when it worked I mean slightly less satisfying when it didn't I guess but we don't really have those very much now the one-off I love those I've done three of those and I did one called Peace of My Heart which was about adoption in the late 60s in New Zealand And then I did one called Bliss, the beginning of Catherine Mansfield, which was about Catherine Mansfield's gap year when she was 20. I I saw that. I thought that was wonderful. 
Thank you. And then there was consent. They were all one-offs. They were telemovies because they were as long as a feature film. They mm. were an hour and a half on screen. And they used to be a real fixture on TV One on a Sunday night. And they haven't entirely gone because there's a, another one coming up really soon that I was involved with last year called Princess of Chaos, which is the Bevan Schwang story, one-off, 90-minute story, fantastic story. That is another form of storytelling because it's not episodic it's just the whole thing in one hit that is a very satisfying thing to write one thing that new zealand tv drama tends to go for particularly i guess tvnz is the based on real life stories you know i mean you mentioned yeah. uh, the louise nicholas story they're not so keen i don't think on making something up completely i mean do you have an opinion about that i can see why they like to hang the stories on real life because there's a built-in pre-publicity factor. People already know about it. It's made the headlines in one sense or another. So I can see the value of it. And I also really like telling the stories of our place, our society, in dramatic form. I think there is a real place for that. You know, that active imagination that goes, okay, it really happened. But I want to dig into the themes. I want to dig into the motivations of the characters. I want to have a go at what I think the story means or represents on a deeper level. For me, the Louise Nicholas story was, I was so hungry to tell that story, not just as a record of what actually happened, which is incredible enough, but to to dig into what that means in terms of New Zealand society and gender politics and our relationship with authority and the way we treat children. There were just so many issues there. And I love to explore issues through drama, not in a didactic way, but in a way that goes, we're all just human. We are all messy. Even when we're doing terrible things, In some part of ourselves, we can justify them to ourselves because we don't want to see ourselves as monsters or villains. And that's the way I like to come into it. When I was writing Consent, I had to be all the people inside my own head, not just Louise, Mm. but the police as well. How hard was that? I mean, because you're you're dealing with some (laughs) fairly dodgy people and you have to be a dodgy person while you're writing it, I'm assuming. Yeah, they were. They were strange days at the office because I'd have to (laughs) put myself in those shoes and think, I am that person. What do I think I'm doing? You know, when I go around to her house and I knock on her door and I go, G'day, Louise, can we come in? What do I think I'm doing? And not make a judgment but just try and enter the feelings. I mean, it it can be incredibly uncomfortable, Mm. but that's one of the deepest values of drama, I think. One great thing I thought about consent was the structure. I mean, I know that Graham Tetley, the late Graham Tetley, did some work on that as well, but real life isn't easy. Real life is tough because it's not a three-act structure generally, and your job as a writer is to give it some shape, to give it a thing that says it now starts here and it now ends here. Yeah, well, within consent, there were three timelines going forward. That's the way I thought of it, Mm. to um, make it workable for myself. There was the 1981 timeline when she was 13, 
and there was the 1986 timeline or thereabouts when she was 18. Hmm. And then actually there was the early 90s timeline when she first started pursuing a complaint with the police. And there was the early 2000s timeline, so there were actually four, when Phil Kitchen turned up on her doorstep and said, you know that thing that happened way back then, and when you took those, you tried to pursue a complaint and it didn't work, do you know why it didn't work? I'm going to show you. So I had four maps on my office wall, (laughs) um, you know, to to keep it straight in my own head, Mm. about which line I was on and whereabouts I was on that line. When you're selling something, a New Zealand story overseas, I mean... It's not enough that it's a hit here. It's not enough that it looks all right or anything like that. You're up against now not just England and America and Australia. You're up against the world. I mean, there's stuff from everywhere now, and they're all fighting for the same eyeballs. How do you get them? Um, My my tiny little answer that came springing into my head was it has to be good, and that isn't meant to be facetious, not at all. It has to be really good in its characters and its storytelling and its themes and its acting and its cinematography, you know, in every category, it has to be top quality. But as you say, because there is so much now and the world is a global market, if your thing is really specifically locally from its own place, that's an advantage. I think it's from Shakespeare, he says, we give to airy nothing, a local habitation and a name. That's what writers do. Like, you know, you you pull it out of the air and you locate it somewhere specific. And we've all seen that. We'll watch the film about the people in the Irish village or the people on the Swedish peninsula or the people in the Australian outback and actually where they are, the landscape that they're in. It's often a really significant part of these stories. The thing that's going to engage us in a story like that is that although the the locale and the characters are very specific, the themes are universal. If we don't understand what's going on underneath it all, what they want, what they're afraid of, what the end goal is, if we don't understand that, we're not going to be interested. It's like me and the Sopranos, you know, anybody less like a mafioso you will (laughs) never meet because I don't like violence. I've never been to New Jersey, but I was completely hooked on the Sopranos because of the dynamics in the relationships, particularly the relationships of the female characters, you know, Carmela, Dr. Malfi and Livia, his batshit crazy mother, if I'm allowed to say that word, RNZ National. These are just terrific characters. You don't have to be where these people are from to understand what's driving them and what they want. Screenwriter Fiona Samuel talking with Simon Morris.